Hi, Marcus Pierce here. Exceptional Life Blueprint Live, my signature two-day transformational event, is coming to Melbourne for the very first time, and you are invited. Join myself and a tribe of like-minded souls at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre on June 3 and 4. You will transform every area of your life from mediocre to magnificent and create a blueprint for your life purpose and career, your health, wealth, relationships, spirit, and more. Early bird two-for-one tickets are on sale now at melbourne.marcuspierce.com.au forward slash couch. That's melbourne.marcuspierce.com.au forward slash couch. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicating bringing wellness to our lives. Today, we have someone special, but it's you and me today, Brett. Damien's off yeah. somewhere in Paris uh, I don't know exactly where <laughs> no, he is, but uh, you know what? We got a, a special guest today because um, coming back, you know, we're coming up, to, you know, we just passed the 300th episode of the Wellness Guy Show, and back, back in the day, back in the day, in our first year, <laughs> like 300 six, episodes ago, Rob. no, no, 600. It was six months in episode number 26 of the Wellness Guys. We had this gentleman uh, from the Paleo Solution. Brett, do you want to introduce our special guest? Because I know you want, you're dying to introduce our special guest. For you know, you know, I'd love to interview Rob. Uh, I've interviewed Rob a couple of times now, and each time I do get a little bit excited because uh, on my other podcast show, that Paleo Show, we always ask people about their Paleo journey and how they got started. And invariably, at least one in two of them say, "I started by reading and listening to Rob Wolf," uh, because his books, uh, the Paleo Solution, his podcast, his website has inspired millions of people around the world to start looking at how they eat, how they think, how they move, uh, and adopting and thinking about the paleo diet. So Rob is a bit of a idol of mine. He's a you know, his book is fantastic. I recommend it to so many people because it's informative, but it's also very funny and entertaining. So I could go on about Rob. I could just, uh, you know, piss in your ear forever, but I'll, I'll introduce. Welcome to the show, Rob. You guys need to talk to my wife more. Uh, uh, she needs a little pump up. She's, she is not buying the hype at all. So thank you, guys. <laughs> She's there to balance you, right? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, Italian women are very, very difficult to impress, and I, I've done very little impressing for her. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, it's it's so good to have you on the show there. Um, so, you know, Rob, you know, it's been a long time since we, you know, we had you on the wellness guy show but uh what made you decide to you know write another book oh man you know uh it's a little bit like having a kid where yeah. the, the first kid arrives and you say good god i'm never doing that again and then a little bit of time transpires and you're like oh it wasn't that bad it's not that big of a deal <laughs> and, and you know uh, uh you you fiddle around with an outline and you get some ideas but it, it's um uh it, it I guess kind of multifold. One one of them, the the factors that really kind of drove me to do something. Uh, six years ago, now almost five six years ago, we moved to Reno, Nevada, and we were in town just a couple of days. And I received a phone call from this guy who identified himself as Greeny, and he said, "Hey, we've got a medical clinic. We really like your work. You should come down and check out what we're doing." 
So I went down to the clinic and walked in and Greeny turned out to be this guy, Dr. Jim Greenwald, who's a, a now retired but formerly pretty famous orthopedic surgeon. And in the clinic, they had my book for sale and Gary Tobb's books for sale and Lauren Cordain's books for sale. And I was kind of looking around like I had stepped into some alternate you know, universe or something because usually like mainstream medical scenarios, they, they gather these books up and burn them. They don't, you know, offer them as part of their clinic offerings. And they shared with me the results of a, a pilot study that they were just wrapping up at that time. They had done a two year study with the Reno police, Reno fire department. They found 35 people at high risk for type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease, put them on a paleo type diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best they could. And based off the changes in their metabolic risk parameters, it's estimated the pilot study alone saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. Wow. Which I was just kind of like, holy smokes, you know, and I'm kind of an econ geek. And so I've thought that there was some sort of like a Moore's Law, you know, huge cost savings waiting out there if somebody implemented this evolutionary medicine template in the right way. So I felt like this was a pretty good validation of that. And I've actually been working the last five years to try to build this thing up and scale it and take it out to the masses. And that's proven to be a little bit more challenging than what I initially thought. But, uh, you know, amidst all of that, it really just kind of it shined a light on this ancestral health template in a way that I was like, okay, man, people really need to know about all this stuff. But at the same time, the basic paleo diet term has all kinds of weird baggage with it. You know, the media loves to turn it into this caveman reenactment gig. Um, you know, the folks even who have had good success with a paleo diet, they oftentimes spend more time asking, is this food paleo than asking the question, is this a good option for me? And so there were some <laughs> kind of inherent challenges with it. And uh, I, I was also trying to think of, you know, what's a different way of meeting people you know, in a spot that's going to be beneficial for them. And something that I had seen pop up again and again, folks would jump into paleo or primal or low carb and they would motor along by all, you know, external accounts. They seemed to be doing great. And then all of a sudden they were just gone. They would just peel out. And we, we would see this in the gym in online communities and in, in the medical clinic that I'm now on the board of directors and in talking to these folks, there was kind of a common theme that popped up and they would articulate something to this effect, which was they, they despite the success that they were they were experiencing, they felt like the process was too hard and it was hard because there was something wrong with them. There was just something inherently flawed in their DNA. And if they were only stronger or better or what have you, then this whole process should be easier and so they would just abandon it. And and uh, it, it's funny because these big lessons that I've learned over the course of time, people have been trying to share these lessons with me. And I'm just such a knucklehead. It takes forever for the, the information <laughs> to percolate in. But, you know, in because I'm like earlobe deep in all of this evolutionary biology and biochemistry and everything in the back of my head, I would just kind of dismiss this cry for help, you know, this thing of this seems really hard. This is why I'm giving up. And I'd be like, oh, you know, it's just a genetic environmental mismatch. Like, I, I totally understand it. It's not a big deal. But I never articulated that. And I never really got down to the the core issue, which was that this was kind of like an emotional morality thing. Like people thought that they were a failure 
because decoupling from an industrialized food system was hard. And there was a really fascinating paper that I ended up doing a paleo FX talk um, three years ago now that was looking at brain evolution and the omnivores real dilemma. And this thing just like solidified and crystallized this whole story for me. And it really made a case that if you live in this modern world of hyper palatable foods and plenty and you're not fat, sick, diabetic and broken, you're kind of screwing up from an evolutionary biology perspective. You know, we are fundamentally wired to eat more, move less, the exact opposite of the the trite advice that we're given by the mainstream media and medical establishment. And so that was just huge for me. I, you know, on the front end, on a on a storytelling side, I was like, OK, this is the story that needs to be told. This is a way of articulating this evolutionary medicine concept, but without the caveman reenactment and without starting at paleo diet, you know, kind of first principles. But then I still didn't feel like I had a full story there, though. And about a year and a half, two years later, a paper that was looking at individualized glycemic response was released out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And this was just kind of the anchor point for me. What this thing looked at was the individual glycemic responses in 800 different people. They put a continuous blood glucose monitor on these folks and this sampled their blood sugar once a minute throughout the whole course of the study. And they did a full gut microbiome test, a full genetic test. And then they started feeding these folks meals. And what was crazy, what was really fascinating is the, the response to the, the glycemic load was all over the map. Some people would eat white rice and they would have near diabetic blood sugar levels. Other people ate that white rice, the same amount. And it was as if they had a cup of water, like it barely budged their blood glucose response. And there were some crazy things like hummus, which even though I'm, you know, kind of into the, the paleo gig, it's like protein and fat and fiber. Like I would have never thought that hummus would produce a, you know, a remarkably high blood glucose response in some people. But lo and behold, it did. And what appeared to be happening there was an immunogenic response. There was actually a stress response because the blood sugar response was greater than the carbohydrate content of the food. So there was the takeaway was just there was all this variability. It was all over the map. Um, it, as much as you would want to default to just telling people eat whole unprocessed foods, which is a great beginning place it's still really hard to know exactly what that means for you individually because whole unprocessed foods could be beans and sweet potatoes and white potatoes. And for someone like my wife, she can motor right through that stuff and do great. And for me, even a whole food based diet that still contains too much carbohydrate, my blood sugars get up into near diabetic ranges and it's just not going to work for me. So that's probably the longest answer to the shortest question ever in podcast history. But, it, you know, it was um, <laughs> I really felt like this paleo diet concept was worth a, a big push to get out to people, but it needed to be couched in this more uh, neuroregulation of appetite story and, because that's really where the rubber hits the road with regards to behavior change. And then we really needed some awareness about the individuality that that really drives the different results that we see, because we see great examples of high carb interventions that work in some people. We see examples of low carb interventions that work in some people. And there's not really a lot of discussion about why there's that variability. And there hasn't really been a good 
template for you individually figuring out where you are in that story. So, Rob, what's the best way for people to find out? You know, we're talking about individuality and that perhaps people might need to vary their paleo diet. And we know that traditionally that happened. You know, there were some tribes in Papua New Guinea who ate huge amounts of carbohydrates. You know, there were Inuits who ate huge amounts of fat. And so we know that, you know, everyone did paleo differently even before paleo was a thing. So, but how do people know which of those groups they might be in and, and how they should individualize their paleo diet? Oh, it's a great question. And, you know, what What we do is we walk through a triage process where we start asking some questions that start on the subjective side. How do you feel between meals? Do you have good cognitive function? Do you get hangry? Like, do you get hungry and angry, you know, from a particular meal? <laughs> yeah. And so we, we start mapping kind of our response, but we start at the very kind of almost emotional, intuitive, experiential side, then we start getting more granular. We ask some questions like, what's your waist to hip ratio? What's your blood pressure? How did your uh, A1C look? What's your uh, LPIR score, which is the lipoprotein insulin resistance score, which is what we use in the clinic to really nail down where folks are on this insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum. And then when we're armed with that, we have a pretty good sense of where folks are with regards to insulin signaling. And then we drop them into a 30-day reset, which is based around basic paleo template. But it may be a little bit on the higher carb. It may be a little bit on the lower carb based on where you are with regards to insulin sensitivity. And we'll motor along for about 30 days with that. And then if folks want to, something that I really highly suggest is they do a seven-day carb test where they pick a battery of carbs they eat them first thing in the morning, and we try to make this as serial killer repetitious. We do it at the same time, the same way each day, and we see what the blood glucose response is to these meals. And this gives folks a really good sense of a, a battery of, of carbohydrate-sourced meals. You know, how do they respond to that? Uh, both my wife and I just did a, a pretty cool, you know, Instagram and social media uh, kind of study on this. And it was, it was just fascinating. My, my wife, God, God bless her pancreas, but man, she can kick my ass up one side and down the other on, on a blood glucose response. And it was really interesting. And I kind of confirmed what I had always suspected, which was that things like white rice, white potatoes, even sweet potatoes, like I need to really moderate the, the amount that I consume of those and, or I need to think about, you know, timing, like dropping them into the post-workout period after I do jujitsu or a hard interval session or something like that, or else I get really wacky high blood glucose response. And then mm -hmm. some things like lentils, I do pretty well with, both from an immunogenic perspective and also from a blood glucose perspective. So that's kind of the process. We march people through a triage. We do a reset. The reset is based on where they're playing out in this insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum, ideally going through that process improves their inflammatory profile, improves their insulin sens sensitivity. And then we're going to play around with what the outer boundaries of their carbohydrate tolerance looks like. Hmm. It brought, you know, you mentioned about obviously, you know, creating this 30 day reset, you sort of need to do some, um, you know, obviously subjective self-awareness stuff, but also too, you mentioned about the blood test, like where do, you know, the general public, because I guarantee people are listening to this because, okay, that's great. But how do I get these blood tests? Do I just go to a normal doctor? Would they even want that? Because, you know, you, you then you have that avenue to deal with. Like, where do they, they, where do they get this test? What would you suggest people to get this test? And yeah, um, so I, go ahead. Oh yeah, go ahead. 
No, no, just getting tested and analyzed. Yeah, so I detail what tests to look at in the mm. book, and it starts off at a, a standard lipidology panel, which would be total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, blood glucose. I add in some additional elements like the A1C and fructosamine, which gives us a sense of what the glycemic load is looked like over time. I also recommend some advanced testing, which is looking at LDLP, LDL uh, particle count. And based off of that and some other NMR-derived data that we can get from this uh, LDLP testing, we can get this LPIR score, this lipoprotein insulin resistance score. Traditionally, if you go through your standard, you know, kind of health screen, a triglyceride HDL ratio will give you a, a decent sense of what your insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance is. But there's about a 40 to 60 percent variation in that. You will miss a lot of people, particularly if they are what we call discordant, if they have high lipoproteins but relatively low cholesterol due to some metabolic shifts that usually occur from shift work, from a hypervigilant state. So we see this a lot in police, military and fire personnel. So this is why we really focus on that LPIR score. And for folks in the U.S., they can get this ordered through our clinic. We have a a portal that's being developed so that they can order that through Specialty Health in Reno. Otherwise, uh, you have to go talk to your doc and make a case for why you would want this uh, particular type of testing. And I would say, unfortunately, 99.9% of primary care docs are not even going to know what these things are. So they're certainly not going to make them part of the, the basic panel you're probably going to have to beg and cajole them to uh, to get this stuff ordered. And it's unclear whether or not insurance would reimburse for this. But it's not super expensive. Like the whole package is $250, $260, something like that, depending on on uh, who you get it ordered through. So interesting, Rob. Um, I know that is a question people ask all the time. So people are going to love that information and love the information in this new book. And so... As far as what you recommend in the new book, obviously we're talking about personalizing things a little bit more, but in terms of how you've changed your own personal diet and how you've changed what you recommend to other people, you know, it's been seven years since the Paleo Solutions. So what's changed since then? Oh, man. I mean, really this this emphasis on customization, uh, you know, the, the ancestral health template didn't didn't itself change all that much in the, the last seven years, but Definitely this awareness that there's a huge spectrum in the way that, that people respond to foods, you know, that is really the the key takeaway from this whole story. And, you, you know, I talked a lot about immunogenic foods in the first book. You know, this is kind of the, the classic paleo diet argument that things like grains and legumes may cause some GI problems and whatnot. And I just expand on that in this book and, and uh, further pull that information into making the case that even a lower glycemic load food, um, you could get a really elevated blood glucose response because of the immunogenic properties, because it causes a stress response. That stress response causes, uh, you know, cortisol and adrenaline release that pings the liver, the liver releases glucose. So, and we can kind of ferret this stuff out on, on blood work. If we see someone who's legitimately been eating low carb, but we see an elevated A1C and an elevated uh, fructosamine, 
we know that this person is either overtraining under a lot of stress or potentially eating a lot of immunogenic foods. So this is, you know, uh, I guess the further refinement is being able to to get in and see what some of the, the subjective and objective measures look like and then make some good clinical uh, decisions around that. You know, from a mindset perspective, like you're talking about, you know, warranty, you know, obviously genetically builds, you know, the, what about how does willpower or better discipline? I mean, that's been one of the mantras for people to say, hey, you know, if you have better willpower, better discipline, you'll be able to get through it. And what you're saying is, is gen- it's gen- genetically disposed that w- we are actually wanting some of these foods that, you know, they, especially the especially when uh, the foods are being made to make us, you know, obviously love it. So you're just saying it's mostly genetics that's actually causing us to want these foods. Yeah, you know, relying on willpower is like a possible analogy here. It may work, it may not. But if you needed to walk 200 miles, would you want to walk it on a, a, you know, a stable surface or would you want to walk it literally on a tightrope? Mm. And, and uh, you know, almost anybody could probably navigate 10 or 15 feet on a, a standard, you know, circus style tightrope. Nobody's going to make it 200 miles. And the 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 analogy there is that, uh, you know, if if you are setting yourself up such that you've got all kinds of delectable treats in your pantry and in your freezer and you think that you're going to avoid those at the middle of the night um, when you're under stress, it's absolutely ridiculous People forget that eating is a survival mechanism. Mm. It is woven into our DNA, the desire to seek out food and to seek out novel foods and and a variety of foods. That's survival stuff. We just don't see it as that because if you have the good fortune to be born into or make your way into a westernized, uh, civilized culture, we are awash in plenty for the most part. And so there's a whole decoupling from this notion that food is a survival story, but The same impetus that would cause someone to want to drive their head up out of water if they fell into a creek and they're being swirled underwater and they're going to drown, that person is going to do everything in their power to pop their head out of water and gulp a breath of air because it's survival Mm -hmm. and eating is survival. And so, you you know, similarly, no one would begrudge or, or morally lambast someone who is trying to save themselves from drowning. But yet we begrudge and morally lambast people who find it difficult to to say no to all of these, uh, you know, delicious foods. But, you, you know, there is a degree of planning that's necessary here. Uh, you just you, you need to think ahead. Um, you can't have your home full of all these, you know, ice cream and cakes and cookies. There's there's a very few people who can have their house stocked with that stuff, stocked the way that you would have in the middle of a, you know, a supermarket snack aisle and not eat that stuff all day long. I, I suspect that those same people probably have a whole wardrobe of, of uh, you know, shirts and clothes made out of human skins. Like they're just not normal. So it is a, <laughs> there's a really crazy I, element to that. And, I, I, uh, I'll vouch for that, Rob. I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who can't do that. If, like if yeah. it's in my house, it's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, it, 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 and, you know, it will vary from person to person. Like, I'm not super motivated by sweet stuff. Like, I'll have a little dark chocolate here and there, but it's really not that big of a deal. 
but you know, you get something salty and crunchy, like some sea salt and vinegar potato chips. And mm. if there's an old woman between me and that bag of chips, I will push her down, <laughs> step on her back and go eat that bag of chips, you know? And so I, it, and it, again, you know, and I make the point in the book, I'm not saying to have this stuff or to not have this stuff. It's to be aware of what the implications are. So if we have a bunch of people coming over, I might get a couple of bags of these potato chips because I know they're all going to get eaten. I'm going to enjoy some of them at this event and then it's done, but I don't routinely have them stocked in my, mm-hmm. my pantry. And, mm-hmm. and again, just for one, one final, you know, kind of analogy or point to make on this. If you don't want to test your self-defense skills, you don't go to the bad part of town, hang out in a biker <laughs> bar and balance your wallet on top of your head with, you know, hundred dollar bills hanging out. Yeah. Cause that would be ridiculous. You're just asking <laughs> and, Similarly, if you again, you know, you need to know what your triggers are and, and uh, you need to protect the, the home environment and the work environment or school environment to the best of your ability if you're going to succeed. So, yeah, you you cannot rely on self-control or discipline because these are really perishable uh, commodities and, and it, it fundamentally flies in the face of the way that humans function. And so, Rob, I guess the the answer to this traditionally in, in the paleo community and probably in other sort of communities as well is to say that, well, if you just eat enough of the right stuff and fill yourself up with enough good fats, it'll keep you full for longer, then, you know, then you're going to negate the effects. You know, you're not going to be in this crisis mode and you're not going to be, you know, craving this stuff as much. You know, is that still valid or are you saying that's not really as, as relevant anymore either? I would say that that's still very valid, and this is part of that that thirty day reset. But you know, we can still get ourselves into the the deep end of the pool pretty easily. And as cool as it is that there's all these gluten free, I, I wish all these desserts were just labeled gluten free and not paleo, because once you start getting date paste mixed with almonds, you know, it's delicious. But it's kind of like okay, we're we're kind of defeating the point of paleo. But in the book, I I. Uh, detail this guy, uh, Adam Rickman, who is the host of, I think the show's off now because he had huge health problems, but man versus food. And he would travel around and do these eating challenges where you would eat like a 72 ounce steak or, or in this case he would eat a, an eight pound ice cream sundae. And this was called the kitchen sink sundae. And so they (laughs) literally delivered well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so they delivered this ice cream sundae literally in a kitchen sink and he started eating it and he got maybe a third of the way through and then he starts bogging down and he, it, the video, you can see him actually retching and gagging like he's almost throwing up. Oh. Oh, it's fascinating because on the one hand, you you could argue, I don't think anybody would would raise an eyebrow if you said ice cream sundae, that's pretty tasty stuff. You know, I mean, people may moralize it or what have you, but generally we'll say that that's really tasty stuff, maybe even hyper palatable stuff like Mm. above and beyond what would be normal. And it would be very easy to overeat it. But at some point we experience this process called palate fatigue, where no matter how tasty an item is, we will get bored of it. And there's some really good evolutionary wiring as to why we would do that in the past. It helped to increase our, our diversity of nutrients we consumed and also decrease the toxicant load. But it, it still exists. But what Adam did to win this challenge, which by win, I don't know if it was like Diabetes of the Year Award or what, what the deal was, but he ended up ordering a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And he starts eating the French fry and then he'll have a scoop of ice cream and a French fry and a scoop of ice cream. <laughs> 
And what he does is he's able to bypass the neuroregulation of appetite. He's able to bypass that off switch from the ice cream using wow. the, uh, the salty French fries. So you, you can't think of a flavor or a palate experience more different than ice cream than French fry. You know, you've got salty, crunchy, savory, juxtaposed against cold, creamy, sweet ice cream. Mm. But this gives the standard dietetics model of eat less, move more, everything in moderation, absolute fits because he was going to fail eating the ice cream sundae. He succeeded eating the sundae by eating more food. Wow. And this is our modern world. Like, you know, the if people just read that part of the book and they took the like Zen lesson out of that, they're like, Okay, check. I need to moderate my com the complexity of my meals such that I don't eat like a professional eater. Done. Like that's really the story. But if you you know, I have a link um, from the book uh, to that actual video. It's robwolf.com forward slash ice cream, and it is stunning. Like when I've when I've given uh, I have like a 30, 40 minute talk where I I talk about this neuroregulation of appetite, and I kind of finish the whole thing with this video. And I've done this for like Microsoft and, and some other big tech entities and the jaws literally drop and hit the table. People are like, holy smokes, like they really get it. So, you know, back back to your point. Yes. Eating, you know, generally like paleo type meals, um, higher protein tends to be more satiating for a lot of people. Protein and fat tends to be particularly satiating. Fiber can also provide some some great satiety. But even in those scenarios, you could be full, like your belly's full. The signal to your brain has been sent. I'm good. And then if you get something that is far enough afield from your palate experience that you just topped out on, you can and will eat more, it, whether it's, quote, paleo or not. That's awesome, Rob. That is it's just fascinating. It, that is just blown my mind. You introduced some great new stuff. Obviously, there's some great new stuff in the book. Um, so... Where do you want people to go? Where should people go to get this book and why should people get this book? Oh, man, the, the why is kind of tough. I mean, it, it, it should be really driven by individual, you know, uh, desire. If you coach people or, you know, like a CrossFit coach or, or a healthcare provider, I think this would provide really profound insight into the way that the neuroregulation of appetite works. Like you're going to understand folks in a a much deeper level. If you are looking to optimize your own health and wellness, I would say everybody with the exception of like a really elite athlete, they're going to find a huge amount of benefit from this. And even the, you know, the elite athlete will find some, some nuggets in this, just understanding their own neuro, neuro regulation of appetite and the inflammatory response and whatnot. Um, and then as far as where to buy it, it's available anywhere books are sold. You can go to wiredtoeat.com, and there's a great landing page there with some bonuses. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's my greasy used car salesman pitch on that. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. literally on Amazon as we speak, so it'll be available in my practice, definitely, Rob. Yeah, well, Robbie, I think it's just great to have a book like this, and and you're right. You know, everybody has their own reason why they should, and I hope that by listening to this, they would get to at least you know have that one trigger that's uh, will you know make them buy this book because I think it is about changing um, the way we see food and changing the way we do things. So, um, you know, we're at the thirty minute mark, so I just want to quickly ask you this: What's next for you, Rob? Where are you heading towards? What's your interest? Oh, man, you know, what? two two areas still trying to develop this uh, medical risk assessment program, although I've kind of cooled my jets on imagining that this was going to be the 
Facebook or Uber of medicine. There's so many moving parts that we're, we're just growing this thing on a regional level, but that's actually going really, really well. And then I've, I've got to be honest, all the protein, carb, fat stuff is kind of, um, smoke and mirrors. It's the, the, uh, the cheap drink hour. It's like the happy hour to get people in the door. And the thing I'm really, really excited about and passionate about is this sustainability story and linking wagons with folks like Alan Savory and uh, Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms and really getting some deep discussion and some infrastructure around a sustainable, long-term, healthy food production and distribution system. That That's what I'm really excited about. Cool. That's great. So, guys, uh, check out Rob Wolf, uh, robwolf.com. Also, Wired to Eat is the book. And you go check it out. Uh, guys, make sure you like us on Facebook and keep this conversation live on the Wellness Guy Show and the Wellness Couch. Share this podcast with your friends, families, and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and leave a comment, though. Thank you so much again for joining us on the Wellness Guy Show, Rob. And uh, until next week, begin creating wellness to your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on the Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.